0: let's pray together father we do ask that you would give us an unwavering hope that does not stall out or flag in zeal but that it increases and grows because we know that the son of god has been raised and because he is alive we will be alive forever with you father forgive us for our sins. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month, the car maker Lexus made a YouTube video in which they rounded up several ordinary people to come and test drive one of their new cars. And they had made this track, set it up in a, you know, it was like a, re- a remote place, this big flat parking lot, nobody could get hurt, but they were, these ordinary people were gonna test drive this car, but they didn't know, the people who were driving, didn't know that Lexus had rigged up the windows, and especially the windshield, with electrochromatic uh, Material so that at any moment a person remotely could make all of the windows go opaque so that you couldn't see through them. And so the drivers have to go on this course that Lexus has set up, and they got to go through these cones, and there's all these obstacles, and there's these dummies who are standing there like people and other objects that are in the way, and they have to you know, make their way through this course and not hit anything. Uh, but they don't know that at some point during their drive, all of their windows are going to go completely opaque. And Lexus videos the cars from the outside of them driving and then videos the people on the inside uh, while they're driving. And so you can see both of them. And they, um, it, at one point, they do, in fact, make the windows go out without warning so that you can't see through the windows. And it lasts for 4.6 seconds. Exactly. 4.6 seconds exactly and then they you know let the the windows uh, back to where you could see through them again. And so the, the drivers do really well when their vision is you know focused on the track and when the windshield is clear everything is fine but when it goes opaque every single one of them crashes into something. They run into some of the 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 dummies of people that are out there, they run into walls, they run into you know, the side of the track, they crash into all this stuff. And because they're in a safe environment, it's not their car, they're test driving. um, They're just laughing as they're, you know, crashing into stuff inside of this, this car. And so you're, and you're watching them on the video sort of laugh and, and all of this. And so before they got in the car, um, Lexus asked them one question and they interviewed all these people. And then after they got out of the car, they asked them two questions. Before the drive, they asked them how long it takes them to send a text whenever they're driving. And they just sort of brought this up, I guess, casually because the people were unaware of what was going on here. How long does it take them to send a text when they're driving? And each of them said, well, you know, maybe a second or two. After they um, did the test drive, Lexus asked them again, two questions. Did you enjoy not seeing the road? And they were all like, well, no, you know, that was crazy. We, you know, We didn't like that. And they said, well, if not, then why do you do it when you drive? Because they had all already admitted that they sometimes text and drive. And so all of a sudden, the giddiness begins to dissipate from these test drivers. And all of them uh, began to realize, and they got really grave when they realized that this wasn't really a test drive of a new car, but an experiment to show what happens when you text while driving. The truth is is that it doesn't actually take one to two seconds to send a text. It actually takes, on average, about 4.6 seconds to send a text, which was the exact amount of time that they made the windows go opaque to where you couldn't see. Can you imagine what kind of damage you can do if you're driving at full speed in 4.6 seconds? What's that like if you're unable to focus on the road for that amount of time? These people got to see it up close, and it was really bad. Imagine if those weren't dummies that they were running into, but real people that they were running into. How many of us have ever texted while driving? How many of us would do well to learn how to focus on driving and not have to find out by experience how bad and deadly it could be if you just get distracted while you're driving? Well, if driving while distracted is dangerous, how much more dangerous is living while distracted? How much more dangerous is it when you don't focus your eyes on the path right before you, but you're constantly getting distracted and swerving to the right or to the left? If you can't focus, you will eventually crash. Proverbs says this, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. This is a proverb about focus, about staying on the path because you can see the path. Don't turn your eyes away from it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in a sermon on the same text that we're looking at this morning, he said it this way. He said, All great lives have been under the constraint of some mastering principle. A man who is everything by turns and nothing long is a nobody. A man who wastes his life on whims and fancies, leisures and pleasures, never achieves anything. He flits over the surface of life and leaves no more trace upon his age than a bird upon the sky. But a man, even for mischief, becomes great. When he becomes concentrated. Which means a man becomes great when he becomes focused on one thing. And he does that one thing over and over and over. And he doesn't allow distractions to come in to take him off course. He keeps his vision clear. And he keeps his focus clear. And he becomes great because of that focus. And he says... Spurgeon says no man is great unless he finds out what that great mastering principle is. What is the great mastering principle that would keep you and me motivated and focused on the path that God puts before us? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul is answering in the passage before us this morning. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verses 11 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 11 to 15. In the first 10 verses of this chapter, Paul has been explaining what happens to us after we die. If we die before the Lord returns, our bodies go into the grave while our spirit goes to be with Christ in heaven where we await the resurrection of our bodies. But if the Lord returns while we're alive, we won't have to die, but we'll be transformed immediately Into glorified bodies. Because all of that is true, first nine verses, for that reason, we strive, according to verse 10, to be pleasing to the Lord because we know that we all have to stand before God at the judgment. And it's in light of that final judgment of verse 10 that Paul explains his singular focus in this life. His singular focus for his life, the great mastering principle in his life, was preaching the gospel where Christ has never been named. That was his his focus. So what is it that gives Paul his focus and keeps him from being distracted from that focus and from that mission? What is it that makes him willing to pursue that focus and that mission, even if it were to cost him his life? And in fact, it does eventually cost him his life, doesn't it? What is it that keeps him focused on that? Well, for Paul, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, it boils down to two things. It's the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. In verses 11 to 12, it's the fear of the Lord. And then in verses 13 through 15, it's the love of Christ. So everybody look, first of all, at the fear of the Lord in verse 11. Paul says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, again, it's very important for everybody to remember as we read this passage that Paul is still using that figure of speech that we call the apostolic we, which is where he's using these first-person plural references, but he's actually just referring to himself alone. So when he says, we persuade others, He means I persuade others. When he says we are not commending ourselves, he means I'm not commending myself again to you. So again, Paul's speaking autobiographically in this passage, just like we've seen in almost all the passages up until this point. And so look what he says there in verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. Don't miss that little conjunction at the beginning. Therefore, because that connects us to verse 10, which is about the final judgment. And also, notice that little word there where he says, knowing, in context, it's a causal participle. And so that means if you render it accordingly, it's something like this Therefore, because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. Because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. And it's connected to verse 10. The the fear of the Lord is referring to reverence or respect for the Lord. Paul's saying, I know exactly how God's judgment will be, verse 10, and because of that, that produces in me an appropriate reverence and respect for the Lord. Because I know that fear and I have that appropriate respect for the Lord, I persuade others. Well, persuade them of what? He's talking about his work. As an apostle, he's talking about the fact that he has carried the gospel and preached the gospel far and wide so that he might persuade people to believe it. That is what his calling was directly from Jesus when Jesus called him to be an apostle. And so he's talking about that work. You remember in Romans 15, in verse 20, Paul says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul has gone about this work, and of course, the church in Corinth that he's writing to, they were founded because Paul carried out this work in their city. He evangelized them. He discipled them. Salvation came to Corinth And they have a church because God sent Paul the apostle to preach to them. And so Paul is now saying to them, I persuade people because I know the fear of the Lord. The whole reason I came to you is because of the fear of the Lord. It was this reverential awe and respect in light of God's judgment that was the motivator for Paul. Why was it such a motivator for Paul? Well, first because that judgment reminds us that the stakes are really high. Our lives aren't like that practice course that the, you know, Lexus did with those test drivers. In your life, you are playing this thing for keeps. What you do now in the course of your life will echo in eternity. If you follow Christ now, then you will have life for eternity, If you reject Christ now and die in your sin, you will have nothing but pain and despair for eternity. The stakes couldn't be any bigger than that. And so Paul says, because of the final judgment and my reverence for the Lord who presides over that judgment, I persuade people. I don't want people to be on the wrong side of Jesus when the judgment comes. I think that's a part of what Paul is saying here. But there's also another part to this, a second part to this. Paul knows that he too will have to stand before God at the judgment. He too will have to give an account for whether he carried out his mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles just like Jesus told him. He knows he's going to have to give an account For that. And when he gets to the judgment, it will either be shown that he was faithful to that calling or that he forsook that calling and went and did something else that was easier. Keep in mind, he's already been accused by some of the people in Corinth of not being straightforward with them, that he was not somebody who was always clear in his words. And we're going to find out later in 2 Corinthians that there are still other false apostles influencing the church at Corinth and calling Paul's integrity into question, suggesting that maybe Paul was using underhanded methods in the way that he ministers to people. So think about that. In, in this verse, Paul's saying, no, the manner of my persuasion when I persuade people is never manipulative or exploitative. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, I've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. I refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, I would commend myself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying, look, I'm preaching my message in light of God's judgment, which means I'm giving everything straight to people. I'm not manipulating anybody. Could I suggest to you that what was true for Paul as an apostle must also be true for us? Unless and until we have come to grips with the fear of the Lord, we are never going to be the evangelists that God calls us to be. If sin and death and judgment aren't real to us, we will never have the focus we need to carry out the Great Commission. If you don't care about the potential damnation of your neighbor, you won't feel any urgency about your neighbor or his salvation. If you haven't considered the fact that God is so holy and that people are so sinful that if they die in their sins, they will have to endure an unending torment, and that after 10,000 ages have passed, they will still only have just begun their desolation and despair, if you haven't considered that, then you won't move a finger to keep them from that. You won't pray for them. You won't share the gospel with them. You will keep to your own while everybody else goes to hell. Now think about this. God did not treat you that way, with that kind of indifference. Why would God, We treat our neighbor that way. If God didn't treat us that way, why would we treat other people with that kind of indifference? So yes, what is true for Paul as an apostle, I would argue, is true for us. The fear of the Lord compels us. But consider this too. There are many people, Christians, who are busy doing lots of things to reach people with the gospel. There are many churches and many ministries involved in countless activities in order to gather people into their church. But if they haven't known the fear of the Lord, they will be tempted to adopt shameful and underhanded ways in order to manipulate people into becoming converts. People who, you know, gather at their church. They will soften the message They will leave out the hard edges. They'll not make Christ's lordship anywhere near as demanding as it actually is in scripture. They will do anything and say anything as long as it gathers a crowd, fills the pews, and fills the offering plate. And you can kind of know those kinds of ministries and, and churches when you see them. They're really high on production value, but really low on gospel substance when they gather for worship. And you get the feeling that they are playing at church, but they're not blood earnest about actually being God's church in the world. All of us can be tempted towards this because we define success by these external standards. standards. The more people, the better, you know, in our culture. Why do ministries get sideways like this? It's because they've lost sight of the fear of the Lord. And they've lost sight of the fact that one day we're all going to have to give account for the deeds that we do in the body. And it doesn't register with a lot of people that teachers incur a stricter judgment, according to James 3.1. And so they keep doing silly, light programs with no real attention to preaching the whole counsel of God so that the people of God can come forth. Instead, the entire ministry ends up being the fertilization of tares. And no one is any wiser about what's going on. You can gather a crowd without gathering God's people. That ought to send a shiver down your spine. That it's possible that we could do such a thing. So God help us if we lose sight of the fear of the Lord. Because Paul says that it's the fear of the Lord that keeps him focused on the path and focused on the mission. That God has set before him. And it's what's going to keep us focused as well. So Paul says he hasn't lost sight of the fear of the Lord. And for that reason, his ministry has focus and integrity. And and he can't be rightly accused by anybody. Whatever opponents are there in Corinth, none of them could rightly accuse him of manipulating anyone. And if anyone is thinking about calling his integrity into question, he says this. Look at the next part of the verse. What we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. In other words, even if some people don't acknowledge the truth about Paul and they're cynically criticizing his integrity, that has nothing to do with God's judgment of him. And Paul is working to please the Lord. He's not working to please men. He's working in light of the the fear of the Lord, which means he's working in light of of God's judgment, not of the way what, what, what different people think about him, because God's judgment is ultimately the only one that matters. And Paul's working to please the Lord, and he hopes that the believers in Corinth will have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the truth about him, and not be carried away by the naysayers that are in their midst. So look at verse twelve. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving cause, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, remember in chapter three, when Paul said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And so he was saying, do you think I need a a letter of recommendation from somebody before you're going to listen to me? Do I need some kind of a letter of recommendation to to, to minister to you? Or do I need a a letter of recommendation from you so that other people will listen to me? And of course, he answered that question, no. You're my letter. (laughs) Uh, You're my proof of the validity of my apostleship. And so he told them no. But the reason he told them no was because Paul doesn't need to commend himself, nor does he need anyone else to recommend him. He founded the church, and he lives with integrity now in his relationship to that church. And he doesn't need anything more than that to commend him. So he's not commending himself to them. Again, that's not the point of what he's, he's writing here. What is he doing? He's giving them as much help as he can so that they can answer those who are calling his authority and apostleship into question. Notice there in the middle of the verse, he says, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. There are some people there boasting about outward appearance, not what's in the heart, and they're misjudging Paul, and they're spreading this, apparently. So he's trying to help them to respond to those naysayers, those critics that are in their midst. So when he says, I want to give you cause to boast about me, he's giving them rational responses to those who form irrational opinions about him. He wants them to be apologists for the apostolic ministry of the word. He's he's prepared them to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that that is within them. That's what he's doing. Why does Paul need a defense? Because there are people in and around the church who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. They're looking at Paul, his beleaguered, broken, persecuted body, and they are concluding that this is not the kind of guy that we want to be like. They're saying we like the guys with the slick rhetoric and the polished appearance, but this Paul guy is kind of embarrassing. And Paul's saying you need to have an answer when people come at God's servants like that. It's interesting because the language that Paul uses here connects directly to the language that is used in 1 Samuel chapter 16, which was our Old Testament reading. Just moments ago and you remember that story Um, near the end of the period of the judges God's people decided that they were tired of God being king over them and that they wanted their own uh, you know a human king to rule over them just like the rest of the nations and it wasn't their desire for a king that was the problem because God had always promised them that he was eventually going to send them a king that wasn't the problem the problem was their desire to be like the nation's With their kings. That was the problem. They didn't want God and his king ruling over them according to the will of God. They wanted a king who was great and majestic by human standards. And so God delivered to them what they wanted. A king who was tall and handsome. He gave them the kind of ruler that they wanted. Which means he gave to them who? Saul. This is the kind of guy you want. Here you go. But even though Saul looked great on the outside, we know that he turned out to be rotten on the inside. And he arrogated to himself the right to offer sacrifices like a priest, rebelling against what God's word says. He refused to annihilate the Amalekites as the Lord had commanded him. And so God declared that he would rip the kingdom away from Saul. And he put judgment on Saul's house. And in 1 Samuel 13... Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And now listen to this. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, you want this kind of king just like the other nations? Here you go. He turns out to be a disaster. Look great on the outside, bad on the inside. but guess what? now I'm done with him, and I'm seeking out somebody after my own heart. and so God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint a king for God's people from among Jesse's eight sons and initially, Samuel is impressed with the oldest son, Eliab, and he's impressed for the same people that people that For the same reasons that people were impressed with Saul. Because of how impressive his appearance was. And it says in 1 Samuel 16, in verse 6, that Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He looks impressive. He must be the one who the God's going to choose to be king. But the Lord said to Samuel, listen to this. Do not look on his appearance. And it's the same word from 2 Corinthians. Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's the same language from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12. It's man who looks at the face, the prosopon the face, the outward appearance. But God is looking at the heart. Just as people admired Saul and Eliab for their outward appearance and mistook that for virtue, he looks good so he must be good, so also people are looking at the outward appearance of Paul and mistaking that for a lack of virtue. He looks bad, he must be bad. In both cases, the error is in forming judgments on that which is of no moral consequence to God. Rather than what is of greatest moral consequence, a person's relationship to the Lord, which you can't see with your eyes. In Saul's case, his impressive exterior was concealing his self-serving, paranoid, unbelieving heart. In Paul's case, his unimpressive exterior was concealing his beautiful self-sacrificial consecration to the Lord's purpose for his life. And in neither case does the exterior tell the whole story about the person. Which means that you and I must never look on people's appearance and make snap judgments either for or against them based on external appearance alone. This is the error of the false teachers that Paul is speaking against in Corinth. These people are boasting in outward appearance, not in the heart. Now, if that principle is true, that has enormous implications for us as a church. It means that we cannot judge what our eyes see in the same way that the world is judging things. You can't judge faithful gospel ministry by how the preacher looks. Thank goodness. (laughs) I remember the first time that I saw John Piper in person. It was at a passion conference in 1998 in Austin, Texas. And of all the speakers at this super cool conference for college students, Piper was the least cool looking of the bunch. I don't think he will mind me saying that. (laughs) He was the least cool looking of the bunch. He looked like everybody's dad. And yet they put him on the stage. He wasn't hip. He wasn't cool. Wasn't physically imposing. Just kind of an ordinary blazer, slacks, and a non-power tie. Okay. But when he opened his mouth to preach, you had the sense that the Holy Spirit in power was being unleashed into the room. It was like nothing I had ever heard. One of the most powerful encounters with the word that I've ever had. Impressive externals do not necessarily correlate with impressive internals. And you need to be biblically wise enough to know the difference. And I want to make one more application here, one more that's maybe a little more remote from the context, but one that is nevertheless a legitimate implication of this this text. We cannot judge what our eyes see in the same way that the world judges things. Man is looking at the outward appearance, the face, God's looking on the heart, right? God help us if we ever look at a person in some physical characteristic they have, like the color of their skin, and conclude that they are less than because of that characteristic. So let me get really specific here. I was in a restaurant in my hometown some years ago, near my hometown some years ago, and I bumped into this guy who was, I didn't know him, but he was married to a girl I had gone to high school with, and she had gone into the restroom, and he and I are standing outside in this common area, and we're having this conversation, and he tells me that, yeah, you know, you know, my wife, she didn't actually graduate with you. She left the school before graduation. She was gone before her senior year. I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that. And he said, yeah, she left the school because of all the, and then she, he says the N-word to me. And he said it like it was nothing. You know what that's called? It's called racism. It's what the Bible identifies as a species of the sin of partiality. It's evil. It's wrong. It's looking at the outward appearance and not loving somebody and judging somebody else better because of some external characteristic that doesn't enter into the calculation that God has. Every single person is created in the image of God and you owe them your love because of that. It's a lack of love. It's looking at the world Not as God sees it, but as fallen man sees it. It's boasting in appearance and not in what really matters. Here's another example. You see a news report that a policeman has shot someone. And you begin scouring the rest of the report to find out the race of the wounded person and the race of the police officer. Because you know, if the officer was white and the other person was not white then you know that the officer was wrong. How do you know he was wrong? Is it because you know the facts of the case? No, the details haven't been released yet. And they may not come fully to light until an investigation or a trial. But the facts and the the evidence don't matter in your calculation. All that matters is the color of the skin of the one doing the shooting and the one who was shot. And if that's your calculation, you know what that is? It's racist partiality. You are judging as man sees and not as God sees. You cannot determine guilt or innocence based on the color of someone's skin. And if you think you can, you're sinning and you need to repent of racist partiality. Guess what the people were in Paul's church in Corinth that were causing problems? They were not seeing the world as man sees it. They were judging and boasting in appearance and not in the heart. And Paul says that his opponents are making an unrighteous judgment about him because they're looking at externals and turning their noses up to him. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that they need to have an answer to those who boast in outward appearance and not in heart. And he says that they can rest assured that he has carried out his ministry as someone who's come face to face with the fear of the Lord. I have integrity within my ministry. And I may not look impressive on the outside, but guess what? The Lord has me. And I know the fear of the Lord. So next, after the fear of the Lord, he talks about finally the love of Christ. Everybody look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now the ESV has this translated... As if Paul were talking about being beside himself, um, but but the underlying term here is this word existemen. and it means something like um, the inability to reason normally, or to lose your mind, or to be out of your senses. It's it's more than just being beside yourself. It's like um, there's a loss of faculties for a moment. It's it's in fact it's the word that is used of. Um, that Jesus's enemies used in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21 when they said that he was possessed by a demon and that he was quote out of his mind. So in what sense then would Paul be saying here in 2 Corinthians 11 or excuse me 5:13 in what sense would he be saying I'm out of my mind if I'm out of my mind it's for God. Now it's possible that he's being ironic. Right, and just acknowledging that some people think, you know, the way he lives his life, he's out of his mind, you know, and so he's saying, "Oh, you know, if I'm out of my mind, I'm doing it for the Lord." You know, it could be that he's being ironic, but um, uh, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I, I think this word is 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 indicating that he's 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 not being ironic. Uh, this word for being out of, of your mind has a has a different form that appears in the New Testament numerous times. Um, to refer to someone who was in, who has entered into an altered state in which their consciousness is either either partially or wholly suspended. So to be out of your mind, in this other use of the uh, a related term, it's it's where they're in an altered state in which their consciousness is either partially or wholly suspended. So, for example, the term appears in Acts chapter ten and verse ten uh, of Peter when he was praying, and then it says that he fell into a trance, and that's the word, trance. And it says that while he's in this trance, he sees a vision, and he hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him. It's the same word that Paul uses of himself in his speech in Acts chapter 22, in verses 17 through 18. And I'll just read it to you. He says, And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony to me. So this happened to Peter, this happened to Paul, where they, there's this altering of their consciousness and it's, their consciousness is either partially or wholly suspended while they're having this vision, hearing these voices. And they're like in a trance otherwise. On the external, it would look like they're having some sort of an ecstatic experience or, or, or in a trance. Apparently, Paul had these kind of ecstatic experiences in which he has direct encounters with the Lord. And in fact, he shares about one of them later in the book. He says he's caught up to the third heaven. Remember that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? So he has these direct encounters with the Lord that are really extraordinary, revelatory moments. And it may be that he's bringing this up here because some of his critics in Corinth valued those kinds of experiences And they like to see their teachers have these kinds of ecstatic spiritual experiences. But yet they hadn't seen much of that in Paul. With Paul, he's just kind of a plain Jane guy. He shows up, he preaches to them. And they're thinking, you know, where's the flair and the overt displays of power with Paul? Why doesn't Paul have the same ecstasy that some of these other preachers have whenever they come through town? They want they want to see this from him because they're the kind of people who judge based on what. Outward appearance. they're not judging based on what's in the heart. And Paul's response simply is this, look, if I have an ecstatic experience that that's between me and God. So it's not just you know if I'm beside myself, it's for God. it's no look. if if i'm if I appear to be in a trance, or, or I've had some kind of weird experience like that, revelatory moment. That's, that's an issue between me and God. That's of no concern of yours. And I, I don't necessarily try to put on displays for you. This is not performance art. But if in my, I'm in my right mind, that is for you. Because that's when I am clearly and rationally exhorting you with the gospel. That kind of ministry, Paul says, is my bread and butter. Not going off into revelatory trances you know, to, to, to wow an audience. So Paul just wants them to know that he does what he does in his ministry for them. He's in this for their good and their edification. And he's preaching to them in words that they can understand that's far more profitable for them than watching him fall into some trance or into some ecstatic experience. Everything that he does, he does for them. Why? Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The word translated there in the ESV as controls is a word that's sometimes rendered as constrain. At other times, it's, it's rendered as compel. Constrain. Or compel. In your ESV translation, it says control, but um, it's a word that can have both of those meanings. To, to constrain in the sense of, of restricting someone's movement, or to compel in the sense of encouraging one to move in a certain direction. And the question that interpreters have had is, is which is it here? Is he talking about constraint or compelling? Restricting movement or encouraging movement in a certain direction? I don't think it's an either-or thing, actually. I think it's, it may be both in this sense. When I was a kid, we first moved into the house that would be my childhood home. Um, whenever it would rain, the water would gather up behind the house, and it would seep into the house, and so into our den, in fact. And so every time it would rain, if it rained enough all the carpet around our television in that corner of the house would just get soaking wet. And so my dad and my Uncle Johnny went out um, after this happened a few times and they dug a huge trench around the back of the house and then around the corner of the house to direct the water away from the house and down the slope on the side of the house. After they dug that trench, guess what happened? No more water in the house because the trench both contained And constrained the water. And through that constraint compelled the water in a different direction away from the house. That's what Paul is saying that the love of God does for him. It both constrains him and compels him. It focuses him on the path that God has for him. By restricting him from being distracted from the path by other things. In other words, the love of Christ is controlling his every move but that then raises the question what does he mean by the love of christ is he referring to christ's love for paul or paul's love for christ i think the way paul uses this expression elsewhere indicates that he's talking about um, christ's love for paul that's what it is that compels him in fact um, romans chapter 8 verse 35 who will separate us from the love of christ tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor thing present nor things that come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God. Verse 35, love of Christ. Verse 39, love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whose love? Christ's love. God's love. It's not our love for Christ but God's love for us. Ephesians 3.19, Paul says that he wants us to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That's not our love for Christ. That's Christ's love for us. I could go on and on with example after example of this, where the expression is clearly referring to God's love for his people. But maybe the most important example is Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love. He demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In all these instances and more, it's clear that it's God's love for us. But this last one, for Romans 5, 8, may be the most important parallel to what we're looking at in 2 Corinthians. Because the way that God demonstrates his love for us is by Christ dying for, what, for us. And guess what it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 14. Paul says, For Christ's love controls me because I've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul saying that the supreme expression of Christ's love for his people is laying down his life for them. And Paul has become convinced of this truth. Therefore Christ's love constrains and compels him towards this singular focus, faithfully preaching the gospel to sinners. Notice that Paul says that one has died for all, which means that Christ has died in our place. This is substitutionary atonement. He didn't die for all without exception, but for all without distinction. He died for all his elect people. He died in our place and suffered the penalty of death in our place so that we might be freed from that penalty ourselves. And because he did that, it says, therefore, all died. Which means that because Jesus is our federal representative Head, And because we are united to him through baptism in the spirit, when Jesus died, we all died with him. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Which which means we have been united to Christ in his death. We no longer live for ourselves because of that but we live for him. So think about this. Have you come to terms with the fact of what Christ has done for you? Have you comprehended the height and the width and the length and the depth of the love of Christ for you? According to Paul, if you haven't done that, if you haven't thought about what it, the love that it took for Jesus to hang there on that cross, if you haven't done that, you will not be constrained and compelled to focus on the path that God has set before you. You will be pulled and distracted in every direction except in the one direction that you should be moving. Because like begets like. God's love for us begets in us love for others. And if you don't know the love of God for you, you're not going to be compelled to love others as you should. You will be driving your 4.6 seconds without being able to see the road. What kind of trouble can you get into without that singular focus on the path before you? How will you ever get that focus unless your own heart is captured by the love of Christ for you? Paul's saying, that's, that's what's happened with me. It's the love of Christ. Christ's love for me constrains me to persuade people, be reconciled to God in the sermon that I quoted at the beginning of this message Spurgeon says something else that I think is really important and I'm going to close with this he says this he says if the love of Christ constrain you it will make you love others for his love was love to others love to those who could do him no service who deserved nothing at his hands If the love of Christ constrain you, you will specially love those who have no apparent claim upon you and cannot justly expect anything from you, but on the contrary deserve your censure. You will say, I love them because the love of Christ constraineth me. Dirty little creatures in the gutter, filthy women polluting the streets, base men who come out of jail merely to repeat their crimes. These are the fallen humanities. Whom we learn to love when we love of Christ. When the love of Christ constraineth us. I do not know how else we could care for some poor creatures. If it were not that Jesus teaches us to despise none and to despair of none. Those ungrateful creatures, those malicious creatures, those abominably blasphemous and profane creatures. Whom you sometimes meet with and shrink from. You are to love them. Because Christ loved the very chief of sinners. His love to you must be reflected in your love to the lowest and the vilest. He is your son. Be you as the moon to the world's night. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would make us perfect reflections of your love in this world. I pray that our fear and reverence and awe of you would keep our eyes on the task, and I pray that the love of God would constrain us and compel us to be faithful ministers of the gospel wherever you put us. Help us to keep eternity in view. Help us to keep your love in view so that we can keep you in view before our neighbors and people who need to know you. Help us, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.